Uh, greetings, friends. It's Chapo coming at you. It's start date Thursday, September 1st. And now I know recently on the show we have been um, focusing on matters on the domestic front here in America, but I think it's time to take a broader look at the world at large. And hey, what's going on? Good stuff, bad stuff, mostly bad stuff. So for, to that end, we have a great guest for you today. To, here to survey the wide world of war, it is, of course, John Dolan, also known as the war nerd. John, what's up? Well, quite a lot in the world, but uh, for, for me, it's trying to do a, an intensive language course in uh, southern Italy in the summer, which... You know, I went through a lot of these when I was in when I was a, a grad student, um, stubbornly learning Russian during the Cold War, just because I didn't want to learn some Western European language. And uh, it, it was much easier to do in my twenties that intensive language class stuff. What, doing what it language in, are you studying? Italian. We're, Italian. we're planning. We're tra- planning to move here if we can. And uh, since. You know, I was supposed to get Irish citizenship through my grandparents, but uh, the Irish government uh, said that since they couldn't find an official birth certificate, they were giving up on the idea. That you know, there there was a family story about that, like there always is. Like uh, the family story is, they didn't want to give the government the sixpence because you know they were they were <laughs> insurgent family. Wait. And I, I've heard that the real story is they didn't have the sixpence to give <laughs> to the government. Okay, so wait. Ireland as a country has still not demographically recovered from the fucking potato famine, and they're turning down a, a man of good Republican stock like yourself, John? What is <laughs> yeah. going on here? I don't know. They probably just... They, it's just, it's country, it's just It's just a barge with Apple's trillion dollars <laughs> sitting on a server somewhere in Ireland. That's oh, it. Yeah, they don't my, want any more my, people. My whole life, Ireland has been giving giant tax breaks to foreign corporations, which use the place for a while and and then move on to some place that will give them a fresher tax break. So that, yeah, that hasn't been working out at all. As for me, it's like, what the hell? This guy is too late to be, you know, changing countries. And it's like, no, no, I change countries every week. I'm used to it. I'm good <laughs> yeah, at it. You're like it. Carmen Sandiego, John. Every time we <laughs> yeah. talk to you, you're from a, 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 from a different uh, global location. Well, actually, I mean, I, I want to talk to like, uh, I mean, I, I have a bunch of like, you know, war topics lined up for you. But like, since you brought up Ireland, I mean, what, do you, what is your, like, where do you, how do you rate the likelihood of a united Ireland within the next, like, within the very short term future? Because it certainly looks like, you know, the, the, the votes and the, the demographics are aligning such that you, we could be seeing, you know, Sinn Féin calling for that vote. And I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you make of uh, like the current um, just like Republican politics in Ireland? Because Sinn Féin, they now have the, the, the they, yeah. they control the government in the, the, the South, the Republic of Ireland, and are basically at like a 50-50 majority in the North. Yeah, well, it's, it's an extraordinary success story. Uh, that's, that's the first thing. And I've been watching it for decades. And in general, when you watch these long, Sinn Féin had a long-term plan, but as Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And yeah. Sinn Féin got punched in the face figuratively and literally. I mean, there's, there's a story about Jerry Adams using the phrase, all bets are off in, in a negotiation. And then a week later, he finds himself facing some NCO with big fists in a basement who says, all bets are off, huh, Jerry? <laughs> and, and whacking him in the face. Uh, so the funny thing about Sinn Féin is 
they had a plan and germinated over decades. It's extraordinary how well I mean, you, you, they move. John, I believe you called it like, uh, or just referred to it as the, the bullets to the ballot box strategy and it yeah. being one of the most successful in modern history. And, it, and that doesn't always work. And it always causes a lot of stress within the movement. And it did cause a lot of stress and led to slapstick like the so-called real IRA blowing up 30 people in Omaha because they didn't know how to time things right. Uh, yeah, the, and suddenly small-time ultra-Republican dissidents were getting airtime on the BBC saying how Adams and uh, McGinnis had, had completely betrayed the movement. But overall... Uh, and and despite a lot of grumbling from every corner, they they did something extraordinary. They just, after decades of refusing on principle to enter the political system of the so-called Irish Republic at all, they uh, entered and they started winning. And the environment has changed radically from the the 1990s when there was no space for Republican opinion at all. It was uh, widely uh, well, it was banned. Uh, Connor Cruz O'Brien's laws banning it as if it was too dangerous to allow just kept it off the airwaves. There's a famous brass eye skit of a Sinn Féin spokesman being forced to inhale helium before he can talk to the media. <laughs> so, You're making me very angry. Um, and uh, and that's that's all over now. They're winning in the South. Yeah, they're winning in the North. As for what that will do to a united Ireland, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon because they these things don't happen. There, there was a tremendous push for Scottish independence. Everybody was in favor of it. And then the people who run the UK and have run it for a very long time and run it very effectively pulled some strings and the referendum lost. And they will pull more strings if another referendum comes along. And they'll keep doing that as, as long as they feel it's necessary. And the elite in Dublin doesn't want the six counties. The elite in London despises the whole place, but doesn't want a really embarrassing loss of status up there. The, I mean, we were, we were in an orange area for a bonfire season a couple of years ago and and that's always fun uh, yeah i i would be uh i'd be wary about joining up with those people they're scary they're, <laughs> they're really i felt you know on on the night of the of july 12th i felt well on the one hand i have a warner duty to go out and, and watch these gigantic bonfires they're they're crazy things like pallets oh they're huge they're just yeah. like they're like you know like uh like it's like yeah you know, the only thing i can compare it to is like like texas a&m or whatever where they have like a <laughs> when that bonfire collapsed and killed all those people it's yeah. just like ima- imagine like a, a stack of shipping crates that are like uh you know three stories tall yeah and uh, there was one in the park right right next to us in uh knox lane uh which we had innocently booked just because it was close to Belfast City Airport and we knew we'd be tired when we arrived. And it turned out to be a place uh, with UDA banners all over the place and uh, not not a place to feel relaxed after a later arrival. But anyway, we arrived there in time for bonfire season and uh, somebody told me, no, you don't really want to go there just to be authentic. And, and I really felt it in my bones as in, 
my bones break when when they get hit now and, and I don't like the sensation of them breaking so much. So I felt Warner duty be damned. I'm not going out on the night of the 12th. And I, I stayed in and uh, was quite happy just to see the photos of the bonfires and the morning news. But anyway, I think, you know, there's, there's a real reluctance uh, to introduce that community to the rest of, of the country because it would be a real pkd style time slip it would be like the <laughs> 17th century meeting the 21st and it'd be very tricky and there's no money in it northern ireland costs britain a lot of money that they pay simply not to suffer the humiliation of losing the place and uh the republic of ireland is basically a small time patronage agricultural society when it comes to the voters and they don't want to have to pay for it either so although there might be a lot of public opinion behind United Ireland, what I find tracking the UK in particular is it's those, that's the opinion of the 90% who don't matter. And I don't think it'll make a difference. Yeah. Well, uh, moving on from Ireland, uh, I know this isn't a war, but it's a, it's a, it's a major uh, global calamity that's happening right now. And it certainly seems to, uh, at least like an auger of things to come in terms of like, we keep hearing about how um, climate disasters will create like huge refugee populations that will put pressures on nation states that might lead to future armed conflicts. Uh, but like specifically the, the flooding in Pakistan right now, I mean like 30 million people displaced, like something like 80% of all the livestock in the country has been drowned over the last week or yeah. so. Like, like, a, like a really like an unspeakable, like biblical level, calamity going on here i mean what do you how do you see that affecting the stability of pakistan and like possibly leading to future wars um to come yeah well pakistan is kind of a puzzle like uh why does it stand i mean how how does it stand we've been doing uh some work in radio warner about the the partition of 1947 and the question is what holds pakistan together at all. And I don't know what would break Pakistan because it's impossible that it would unite with India. It's unlikely to reach stability anytime soon. But, you know, I, I think there's frequently a, a bias in media in favor of the apocalypse in one place or another. And it doesn't usually come. I just developed this slow realization that cultures can stand a lot more stress than, than I used to think. And I, I imagine that Pakistan will sort of totter along because it's been tottering along for a long time. And it's very hard to predict when it will break down completely or what that would be like. But like in terms of one of the things holding together Pakistan, I mean, like, isn't isn't it basically like the military basically runs um, the state in Pakistan? Yeah. yeah. Well, we have this anonymous guest from Pakistan who comes on regularly to tell us what's going on there. And the fact that he has to stay anonymous says a lot about the place. And and his version is, yeah, people blame the ISI, the intelligence service. But basically, the army holds the place together. Only the army means the army and the people who give it money. So it's, it's a classic oligarchy. And 
the rest of the place tries to scrape together a life with what those people are willing to dole out to it. Uh, so, yeah, the army is not going away. The The Pakistani army is a creation of partition, a creation of the, the British state, and it's uh, got a really strong hold on the place. I don't see that changing. Um, like, yeah, you mentioned you've been... Um doing some episodes on Radio War Nerd about, about the partition and like diving, in, diving into that history, was there anything that uh, you discovered or learned about um, in preparing for these shows that surprised you or changed your way of thinking? Yeah, a lot. It's quite astonishing. The Raj is, is such a creepy and uh, untold story. People don't know, I think, that partition was a classic imperial move. It's It's been a move for a long, long time. But it was tried in India first. The first partition in India, the first really important British organized partition, was in Bengal in 1905. And Lord Curzon, very strange and creepy guy, who was viceroy and who was in charge of the Raj, had said simply that, as long as we control India, we are the world-leading power. If we lose it, we instantly sink to a third-rank country. And to that end, he wanted to do something about the independence movement that was growing up in Bengal. Bengal was the intellectual center of India at the time. And it was an extraordinarily populated place. There were 80 million people in Bengal in 1905, which is pretty remarkable given the, the world population back then. And a lot of them were intellectuals who'd learned the English tradition completely and were beginning to be able to manipulate it in favor of independence. Suddenly, the British authorities divide Bengal into Muslim and Hindu districts. That had not been a principle of political identification for the most part uh, before. During the so-called mutiny in 1857, Muslims and Hindus fought uh, together. And if anything, it was the Sikhs who were against them because the Sikhs were kind of taking revenge for something that had happened earlier. But in after this, religious partition, sectarian partition, started to become a tool for dividing uh, the Indian population and especially the, the small section of it that that was the Indian intelligentsia. And that worked. So 40 years, 45 years before the big time partition of the whole subcontinent, there was this experimental partition of Bengal, which actually showed what you could do. Um, just like uh, on the note of how um, creepy and uh, uh, horrible the uh, the Raj was, uh, John, are, have you seen or are you familiar with the uh, the blockbuster Tollywood action film RRR that is out now? No, no. it's it's like basically it, it's a really great movie. It's like it's a, it's a it's a three hour action movie. It's the most expensive movie ever made in India. But uh, I, if I could describe it to you briefly, it's essentially it takes place uh, during the Raj, and it's like a very much like a nationalist action movie about you know revolution against British imperial rule. Um, it, but it's basically like if Mel Gibson were Hindu instead of Catholic, this is the movie he would make. But uniting them is is a is a seething hatred of the British and portrayal of them as child stealing uh, you know creeps, pedophiles, and sadists. Wow. Um, 
Yeah. But no, I bring it up because uh, the, you know, the British right is, of course, I mean, they're still hanging on to the rush, you know, like they were yeah. right. They lost it. And now they're 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 a fucking rump in the spectator. I just a headline here. What Netflix's RRR gets wrong about the British Raj, the vogue <laughs> for facile anti-imperialism is far from innocent. And basically the point of the article is like, yes, there were a few famines and massacres. But like, what about all the good stuff we did there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, Shashi Tharoor has had some things to say ab- about the good things. And basically his conclusion, he's, he's a great guy. People should watch his his uh, lectures and his videos. Uh, his, his answer was basically, all you did for us was the railroads and we would have done that anyway. Uh, so I I don't know. Yeah, there's there's a lot of hope riding on the subcontinental intelligentsia, not just the Indian, but the uh, Bangladeshi and Pakistani intelligentsia as well. There's a kind of strange spell that comes over former colonies. They they have a a weird Stockholm syndrome thing going, especially because, well, like Naipaul, take Naipaul. I don't like Mm -hmm. Naipaul bashing. I'm a big fan of Naipaul's novels. I think A House for Mr. Biswas is one of the greatest novels of the last century. But Naipaul got bullied locally by other factions in Trinidad. And then he got embraced by the publishing culture of Tory London. And he chose sides. And it, it happens a lot. It happens all the time. I mean, Rushdie just got stabbed on stage but Rushdie chose sides for similar reasons i mean he he was bullied as as well from every possible angle as uh an indian muslim of the of every wrong kind and london seemed like a, a refuge to him so i understand how it happens but the the good thing is that not everybody succumbs to it now in the subcontinental intelligentsia there's there's a an economist, uh, Patniak, and she's done this incredible analysis which shows exactly how the empire looted $45 trillion from India, basically by making the whole subcontinent into a company town where everything had to be bought with company script at company prices. Really extraordinary story. And, and that will keep happening. Uh, and I, I think the... The story will get out. It's just going to be a slow, slow process. And there's going to be screeching by the telegraph at every step of the (laughs) way. But then that's the telegraph's job. You know, that's what they do. All right. Well, uh, moving on from uh, the subcontinent, I suppose, like, let's get into what is, you know, although I'll say it, it does seem it has fallen off of like you know the, the being like the sole thing that the media focuses on but like i guess like the the marquee war going on in the world right now is of course ukraine uh john like i it's, it's it is very hard for me to like understand you're still doing that <laughs> yes it's still going on <laughs> the war is still happening in ukraine but john it's a it, it, it's it's very hard for me to like like follow or understand what exactly is going on in that war. So like it's now like you know about nine months into this war. I don't know about like but almost two hundred days at this point. Like how do you assess like both sides and the strategy? Like both sides and their strategy, their aims, their goals. Like 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 who is winning, losing? Like how do you assess the current state of war in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine? Okay, well the first thing I want to say is we got it wrong. 
We got it radically yeah. wrong. Well, I, we, I got it real wrong. Yeah, we we uh, absolutely said this was ridiculous. It could not happen. We made the classical uh, logical fallacy of saying X is wrong, and X would be really stupid to do. Therefore, X will not happen. <laughs> well, no, you know the world doesn't work that way. Uh, a lot of people have walked off cliffs, uh, and and. You don't say it would be stupid of them to walk off a cliff. Therefore, they won't. Um, therefore, they might. Might be a better conclusion to that. So, okay, it, it happened. We got it wrong. But there were good reasons to think it would be a bad idea. And it was a bad idea, at least in the short run. Uh, but it's not going to end up being a bad idea just for Russia. It's going to be a pretty rotten idea for almost everybody. Um, so the war began with a terrible Russian attempt to do Blitzkrieg because that was the doctrine they learned the hard way and it's sort of baked into their military psyche. Just try to roll tanks in as far as possible. As yeah, as possible. and that was foolish. You, you can't do what you used to do in the days when there was nothing but Panzerfaust that could maybe stop a tank from 10 paces away. You can stop a tank with a lot of shoulder-fired things uh, from a lot longer distance. And there were some very telegenic moments of Russian columns getting blasted. Then they withdrew from the whole northern front, their failed attempt to take, or at least encircle, Kiev. And it was a failure. <clears throat> it was not, uh, as they claimed, a diversion. That was way too much for a diversion. Uh so it started with a Russian debacle, and then Russia changed to what it does well, basically walking the artillery through the Ukrainian trenches, and not many half-trained militia forces in the world can stand up to that, and they gained large amounts of territory. Uh, and then they, they stalled out. There were more shipments of serious weapons to Ukraine because... Clearly, the D.C. Beltway circles or the, you know, London circles that run this thing have not really wanted Ukraine to win. They just want Russia to lose. Uh, and if Ukraine loses as well, and if it ends up with Slavs killing Slavs and many hundreds of thousands of people dying, that's just fine. Uh, it's had a lot of malign effects. It's given NATO a real lease on life, you know, like uh, infant blood. Finland, come on down. Yeah. You're now part of it. Join the club. Yeah, yeah. it really is. It's like, it's like a supply of infant blood for a, a vampire <laughs> clique. And uh, the, <laughs> you, you could see the, the New York Times for a long time uh, or the WAPO just glorying in this war. And the interesting thing is they've kind of stopped glorying in it now, which probably means it's stalled out. It's no fun. Ukraine, as Mark Ames has said on the show many times, is not really capable of the offensive that its masters in the West demand. There was, there was an interview with a high-ranking British general a few weeks ago who said, really extraordinary sentence, it would behoove Ukraine to start taking territory now. Uh, <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would behoove them to do that. Yeah, it really yeah. would. It uh, would. That, that's like you know what they tell you when uh, next morning you go out to your car and there's a, there's a bullet waiting for you, uh, and uh, 
they have, I think, tried around Kherson to take territory, but it's a lot easier to hold a trench line with half-trained militia than it is to direct them on an offensive operation. That's been true for millennia. And uh, any attempt to do a counter-blitzkrieg is going to be a disaster. And that's why, as far as I can tell, Ukraine has, first of all, slipped out of the headlines, and second, as Mark has pointed out many times, Ukraine has resorted to doing a lot of uh, gimmick plays, you know, in NFL terms, that uh, they've uh, used the HIMARS missile system to attack, uh, I, I would guess, anyway, they use the HIMARS to attack a Russian airbase in Crimea, and that was very successful. They blew up nine very expensive planes on the ground, but that doesn't prove anything about retaking territory or, or moving um, moving the yardsticks to go back to the NFL. Uh, and they've killed some Russians. There was that very odd assassination of Daria Dugana, uh, and it's oh not- yeah, yeah. Alexander Dugin's daughter was just killed in a, a car bomb. Yeah, very big car bomb. And uh, the the story officially went that uh, no, it wasn't us. She was killed in some uh, fight within right wing Russian circles, which seems really unlikely. Uh, more likely, she was killed by the SBU, the Ukrainian intelligence organization. But, you know, as Mark said, uh, who they hired to do it, uh, there's there's a long list of people who will plant a car bomb for you in, uh, in Russia. Uh, so who knows? Uh, but they've been doing these, these kind of Hail Mary plays because their sponsors need them to do something, and they're really not in a position to do anything. Um, maybe for yeah. people who aren't familiar with him, could you like uh, just give some background on who Alexander Dugan is? The way he's described in the Western press is sort of like a uh, a spiritual guru to Vladimir Putin, almost like a Rasputin type figure. Like, who is this guy? Uh, what's his deal? And why was he like, you know, I, I mean, there's obvious reasons why he'd be made a target of a car bomb. But maybe you could uh, lay out some of them. Well, you'd think I could. but uh, Dugan strikes me as a really boring guy. I've tried reading a few Dugan things and. Um, it's, it's just mystical nonsense, uh, about the Eurasian model and uh, its superiority to the European or Western model. And I have a limited tolerance for that sort of <laughs> crap. Uh, I mean, Mark knows a lot more about this. Mark Ames, my co-host on Radio Warner, and he said something kind of interesting, which is, uh, Dugan, first of all, is not Putin's brain or anything close to it. Putin's brain doesn't need to feed off some maundering philosopher. Putin's brain is concerned with very traditional, very straightforward, great power politics and things like destroying oligarchs who get in his way. The the story that Mark had about Dugan was that when Limonov was trying to do a national Bolshevik uh, avant-garde political movement in Russia around the millennium. He tried to bring in Dugan because Limonov had been in the had been in New York in the 1970s and was apparently really really awed by Warhol's factory, and he wanted to bring in a galaxy of weird, interesting people 
like uh, Warhol have. And Dugan the just weird, in- interesting people in New York are a little bit different than the weird, interesting yeah. people that they have in Moscow. And well, and, and Dugan just couldn't make the cut. He just uh, <laughs> he, he wasn't he, weird or interesting enough. No, he was this stuffy professor's type who wanted to give hour long uh, exhortations. You know, there's an old British, uh, sorry, an old British cartoon by Beerbomb Tree, I think, of uh, Walt Whitman showing this uh, portly middle-aged bearded guy trying to force a bird into the air and calling it Walt Whitman exhorting the bird of freedom to fly. And uh, <laughs> Dugan was like the Russian ver- version of that, like uh, exhorting the Russian bear to, I don't know, maul somebody. But uh, <laughs> he didn't fit at all. And, and uh, Limonov's boys, as he called him, were, were looking at this guy like, he's not cool. He's, he's not anything. Uh, so yeah, apparently Dugan's never met Putin, never been in the room together. I can't say much about his ideology cause I tried reading him as I said, and he's really boring. His daughter spoke fluent French in the clip I saw and did a good job of making the Russian case in Ukraine. But beyond that, I, I don't know. So, I mean, I guess like uh, as best as best I can like like understand here from like what you're saying and what I'm able to discern from uh, news reports about it is it does seem like it's kind of settled into what is maybe kind of a best case scenario for Western planners, which is just an interminable stalemate that's going to bleed both sides of this for the near for the years to come, possibly. Yeah, that seems right. I mean, I I know people people I respect who say this has been <clears throat> this has been great because. Eastern Europe is standing up for itself in spite of German dithering. Uh, and uh, Well, I mean, they need gas. Yeah. <laughs> they need to heat their homes. So Yeah, I don't know what the what German you... dithering is about either. It's just I, I think there's a lot of resentment <laughs> going back generations here. But as far as I can see, Germany is doing something extraordinary, which is like letting itself run out of fuel just to just wolf to satisfy an agenda that that seems more important to the elite than to 90% of the population. Like uh, uh, in the elite, there's both in the U.S. and in Europe, there's tremendous enthusiasm about this united anti-Russia front. But I don't think it goes very deep. And uh, when it when it yeah. the winter comes, I don't think it'll stick around much. Um, what about the issue of like the the massive massive arms sales to Ukraine that's going on right now? I mean, we've seen uh, TikTok videos of guys selling shoulder fired missiles out of the back of their car, and like you know, one of the things that I think is like probably going to be like the the one of the potentially most disastrous and frightening you know blowback scenarios from this war is just this huge unfettered supply of highly advanced weapons going into you know, just being given out like like candy to anyone who can, you know, fog a mirror in Ukraine or just yeah. God knows where else. I mean, like, what kind of weapons are being sold and is it having an effect on, um, like, the front lines? I don't know if it's having much of an effect on the front lines because the what the uh, West was supplying was a lot of uh, man-portable anti-tank and, to some extent, anti-air uh, missiles. And uh, <clears throat> those things were good for the videos, as we said. They show them knocking out a lead tank in a convoy, and uh, so Russia stopped doing that, and now it's just doing the artillery wars. 
And that means there's probably a lot of those things circulating in Ukraine. Ukraine is an extremely poor country. One of the reasons the Crimea unification business went well, and although it's forgotten now, the 2014 referendum in Ukraine on joining Russia was monitored and it was genuinely in favor of uh, joining Russia. One of the reasons for that is Ukraine is a very poor country. When you've got a poor country uh, and missiles, missile systems worth hundreds of thousands of dollars per unit are being handed out to people who are half-starved militia, then they're going to be sold on. That just goes without saying. I think people in the news media have kind of ignored that because they have been trained to fear people with brown skin and Muslim names selling on those weapons. And here are people with blonde hair, blue eyes, and Slavic names, and they don't see that the... It's funny, they don't really believe in the free market. Uh, If if they did, (laughs) they would see that doesn't make any difference. They're going to get sold on. Uh, You can go from the poorest guy in the village, and those are the people who generally end up in the trenches, uh, to a millionaire in a day if you can unload the thing properly. It's not as simple as all that. It's not like, you know, you put it on eBay and, you know, collect the money. But it can be done if you have family and it's going to be done and what those things will be used for whatever anybody wants to do. Um, you know, like uh, this next question is like, look, I, I need to preface it by saying, uh, obviously not everyone in Ukraine is a Nazi, but John, what do you make of the fact that like in every, it was seemingly every photo that the Western media prints of any militia or anyone on the front lines fighting for Ukraine, at least one guy in the group shot has some sort of Nazi regalia or just like, what, what, like, I mean, is this overhyped? Is this not, is this not talked about enough? Like, what do you make of the, like all of this kind of uh, a certain fondness for the 1940s among the, the most like sort of, I don't know, uh, the most impassioned partisans of the Ukrainian cause. Yeah. It's, uh, the the Slavic Nazi thing has always puzzled me. I mean, I I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, uh, nobody killed more Slavs than Hitler, but um, not just in Ukraine, but in Russia too. There's there's a real not again not everybody or not even close to everybody, but there are a lot of fans, and uh, I've had people try to explain it to me as uh, well. You know, he showed us how to come into our own and, and to be what we could be. Uh, he made us great. Uh, it was a very expensive way to be made great. And uh, I, I, I think with, with Ukraine, there was a lot of suffering in Ukraine. I mean, there, there's been some doctrinaire leftist attempts to deny that, uh, that the Holodomor really happened. It did happen. But it probably wasn't ethnically uh, orchestrated. Because people died in Russian areas like Tambov, people died in Kazakhstan in large numbers. Basically, anywhere there were prosperous peasants, uh, the Bolsheviks wanted them crushed, and they were willing to do that at the cost of a lot of lives. But a lot of it happened in Ukraine. So there was a lot of anti-Soviet stuff going on. If the Nazis hadn't been such bloodthirsty idiots, they probably could have 
recruited more Ukrainians because there was so much resentment of the Soviet Union. So that all goes back a long way. And I don't know how much it means. I, I don't think it means that a lot of Ukrainians are diehard anti-Semites. I, I think they have no problem, in fact, electing Zelensky, a Jew, because it's a smart move in media terms. Uh, I, don't, I don't think they're attached to that part of the Nazi agenda at all. They're attached to the blood and soil part of the agenda, which goes back much further. Um, you mentioned uh, like Russia sort of changing its tactics after its initial, you know, a uh, blitzkrieg strategy got bogged down in the mud. And you said now that they're doing like a, a sort of an, an older style of warfare where you just walk the artillery up to like the front lines and then you just start shelling the fortified positions, which are in, often, you know, cities full of people. Is this like, is this a particularly a brutal tactic of war as compared to like, I know a lot of people in the media be like, Oh, well, America would never do anything like this. Or is this just the way nation states fight wars? Yeah. It's how they, it's how they fight wars. It's what we did to Fallujah. It's what we did to <clears throat> Mosul by proxy, uh, Raqqa by proxy. It's uh, ur- urban combat has been one of the bitter lessons of the 20th century. It's very hard to do. And it costs a lot of casualties much easier to blast the place. And, you know, mo- there are 8 billion people in the world now. There, a lot more of the planet is covered by cities. So you have a much easier time just blasting it than sending your own troops down there to get picked off. Uh, but, you know, again, I come back to something that Mark Ames has said on the show many times that I, I admit I had forgotten that in the Nuremberg rules, the post-Nuremberg rules, aggressive war was the number one crime because it leads to all these other crimes, inevitably, to all the atrocities. Yeah, and like, and I, I you know, like in de- defenders of the American military or like when people like in the early days of this war, when like, you know, people like us or other people would say like, look, this is Russia is just doing their version of the Iraq war. We did this thing like 20 years ago. And killed the, you know, or they're going to end up killing about the same amount of people as we did, probably, which is an astonishing number of people. But like the, the defenders of the, the conduct of the U.S. military would say, well, look, um, we're not intentionally trying to kill civilians like Russia is. But to the point about the Nuremberg trials, if it is a war or the Nuremberg standards, if it is a war of aggression, a war of conquest, i.e. a war that is not for defensive purposes, one that you had no reason fighting at all, then any death that occurs after you start hostilities is intentional. You can't yeah. just say, oh, like, well, we didn't, we weren't specifically targeting that hospital. A bomb just blew up near it and killed those people. It's like, no, like it doesn't, your intention doesn't make a difference once you've started a war. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's sort of a, a legal analog of that. Like, you know, if, if you rob a bank and wave a lot of guns around, you know, you're, you're responsible for anybody who gets shot. Uh, the, the idea was to extend that to international law, but that didn't quite work out. For one thing, you know, the U.S. has done most of the uh, invading. And it's it's really funny how that uh, plank of the Nuremberg Accords got downplayed. I, 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 as I said, I, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> it's like I grew up in Cold War U.S. and it, it was just normal for the U.S. to go into places for people's own good. So it, how could it be a war crime? 
I guess okay, my, my last question about Ukraine is, John, I'm wondering if you've seen um, recent news reports which really put into stark relief the role of Boris Johnson and the British government in halting any a negotiated settlement that was on the table and both sides were ready to agree to, which basically would have given Russia the like eastern third of the country or so, but would have, you know, it was a deal on the table that both sides were willing to come to terms with. And then basically the British government, I'm sure at the behest of the United States, put the kibosh on that really quickly and just debted a negotiated settlement that could have like and potentially ended hostilities and, uh, you know, a couple like a month or two ago. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the most telling indication yet that things are going just as the NATO elite would have hoped that it's a stalled out war that's going to engender generations of hatred because that's another consequence of this sort of war. Um, there are always atrocities and there's always a memory from the families of those who've been destroyed in the atrocities. Uh, and that suits the people in Northern Virginia and central London very well. And it's, uh, and you know, parts of Brussels as well. It's not going to end. It's going to make a lot of money, a lot of money. Uh, these weapons cost a ton. Uh, in fact, as weapons, their real drawback is they can only be produced very expensively in small quantities. And in this, you know, war with China that people are foolishly fantasizing about, they'd be used up in a few days and, and everything would grind to a halt. But that's partly a reflection of the fact that they're so expensive. So yeah, there's, there's everything to be gained by the people running NATO and the coupon clippers in Cheney's circle who have McDonnell Douglas stock. There's no reason to close this down. Why would you do that? Especially after, you know, Afghanistan just ended and like yeah. the $3 trillion a year we're spending on that, that just, that's vanished now. God, so, you're hey, right. I hadn't, all of a sudden. <laughs> I'm so dense. Yeah, of course. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, we closed the lemonade stand. Now we're opening up the frozen banana stand. Yeah. It's, <laughs> God, yeah. Uh, new, new franchise, new opportunities. Uh, all right. So moving on from uh, like the, the, the marquee war in the media to one uh, conflict that's been going on for about two years now that uh, is much less remarked upon. And that is uh, the war in Ethiopia that has been going on since about uh, 2020, November 2020. And it's basically, as best I can understand it, it's like an insurgent ethnic minority force. The Tigray People's Liberation Front is, which governed Ethiopia for a couple decades, has gone to war with the current government of Ethiopia. Could you give a little bit more uh, background and like your assessment of, of that conflict? Yeah, yeah. This, this is the one that I, I admit is closer to my heart than uh, Ukraine, just because it's such an extraordinary country. And uh, I've, I've been tracking the wars in the Horn of Africa for 30 years. And uh, I was writing about the, the glory days when the Tigrayans and the Eritreans, along with some Egypt, uh, Ethiopian dissidents, uh, destroyed the Derg and, uh, around 1990 and engaged in glorious warfare. Well, that... Uh, that all ended badly. There was 
a strange moment where, yeah, the Tigrayan elite, and Tigrayans are only a small part of the Ethiopian population, uh, but they are the furthest north part of Ethiopia, and they're, they think of themselves as uh, the, the ancient Ethiopian culture, the, the highland culture par excellence. Uh, they controlled the country after, after 1990 under a guy who was kind of a genius called Meles Zanawi, who defected from the university in Addis Ababa, Abada in uh, Ababa. <laughs> I can never say it right. Um, in 1975, he and his Tigrayans just walked out of the student culture there. It's a really cool story. And, and there's a book called Wara Negari, W-O-R-E-N-E-G-A-R-I. Uh, it's a memoir about being part of this radical student uh, subculture in Addis just as the revolution started. And Meles Zanawi and his Tigrayans, who were part of this student world, weirdly familiar, where uh, everybody read Marxist and Maoist texts, then went back to the dorm to debate while chewing a lot of cot and drinking a lot of horrible local alcohol. And and a good time was had by all on, until the revolution actually came and these groups divided into uh, rival militias, some of which aligned with the officers, the Derg, others fought them. Most of them died. But Meles Zanawi and the Tigrayans went back following their Maoist doctrine rather than the Soviet-style doctrine of the others, went back to Tigray, melted into the mountains, uh, go to the people, you know, that, that red book stuff. And they learned to fight there, and they were very good at it. So when they dominated uh, Ethiopia after the victory, they were widely resented. Abiy Ahmed came to power in, uh, I think, 2018 um, as uh, someone who was part Oromo, part Ahmara, and a Pentecostal Christian rather than Orthodox Christian. And he represented supposedly the, the non-Highland part of Ethiopia and the, the non-Orthodox part of Ethiopia. And everything looked good. And he made a, an epical treaty with uh, the dictator of Eritrea, Isaias Afuerki, and he won a Nobel Prize, which should have tipped us off because, you know, nothing ever good happens from the Nobel Peace Prize. And then it, in November 2020, I think, the, he and Afwerki sent their armies into Tigray. Tigray is the northernmost province of Ethiopia, so it, you push from the south, and Eritrea pushes from the north. And that's what happened. And clearly there had been a secret clause in that Nobel Prize winning treaty that, you know, the Norwegian pacifists didn't hear about, which was, and then after we make peace, we will crush Tigray like the walnut in the cracker. Uh, and it seemed to be happening. Only uh, things didn't quite work out that way. In June, I think, June of 2021, after Tigray was apparently completely conquered, 
Suddenly, the TPLF marched back into Mekela, the capital of Tigray, with 7,000, I think, uh, prisoners from the Ethiopian army marching in front of them. And that was not supposed to happen at all. That was a shock. Uh, and then they kept moving south. That Nothing could stop them. The Ethiopian army was, uh, ENDF, was clearly not what it had once been because it was once a magnificent army. Uh, and they just kept moving south on the A2 highway toward Addis, the capital of Ethiopia. And uh, that bothered a lot of people. There's a big investment in Ethiopia, and it, it doesn't really suit the people who matter for that, to be, for that country to be completely disorganized, especially by a Maoist group like the TPLF. And they started to get large deliveries of drones from the UAE, probably funneled from somewhere else, from those Turkish drones that did such a great job of annihilating the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. And uh, the front sort of stabilized. For five months, there was a, an arrangement then. Looked like, looked like it had hold up, to everyone's surprise. No more fighting, uh, partly because Tigray could be beaten another way, the traditional way, the way that really kills people. It's a landlocked place. Everybody on its borders is hostile to it. Just starve them. And that's what they were doing. To the point that only one news crew got in at all. It was from France, uh, and they were very limited in what they could do. So no one knows how many people have died of hunger and lack of medicines. I, I've been to a few Tigrayan demonstrations uh, around the world. And, you know, first of all, it's really sad how small the crowds are and how sad those families holding the yellow and red flags are. But uh, they talk about how no one has medication anymore. And in a modern country, it's, it's kind of revealing there are many millions of people alive who would not be alive in that post-apocalyptic world. Uh, the, the diabetics, the heart patients, all of those people. So when this happens, they just die. More importantly, perhaps in demographic terms, little kids die because they come down with, as part of the process of acquiring an immune system, they get every bug in the world. And if you got the meds, fine, no problem. They they scream for a couple of days and then they come out of it. But if you don't have the meds, they die. So I would guess that the estimates that 500,000 people have died in Tigray are probably accurate. Most of them children are old. Um, in so like in Ethiopia, there is a, you know, a, there's a religious split between Muslim and Christian, but there's also no real like ethnic majority in Ethiopia. Could you talk about how religious and, eth and ethnic divisions, like how that breaks down in this conflict or like who, who, who yeah. sides with who? Well, I'm not sure uh, Muslim Christian is the main thing. Uh, not, in, not in Ethiopia. The elite in Ethiopia has traditionally been Christian and it's been Orthodox Christian and the Orthodox Ethiopian faith has, is really ancient and it has its own traditions. But uh, Abiy Ahmed is not Orthodox. He's Pentecostal. There's really interesting phenomenon around the world 
in sort of not first world, not exactly third world, but second tier countries in particular. Like, where, like Pentecostalism is the fastest growing religion yeah. in Central and South America right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we were in Argentina, people said the reason they picked an Argentine to be Pope is that they didn't want it to go the way of Brazil. That is Pentecostalism. Uh, because Brazil is turning into a Pentecostal country. Those are the people who who elected Bolsonaro. Uh, and Abiy Ahmed is a Pentecostal. His, his father was Muslim. His mother was, I'm not sure which the father and the mother were, but anyway, one parent was Muslim. One parent was Ethiopian Orthodox. He's a Pentecostal. Uh, and it, yeah, the, that faith has been growing very big. But so it's not Christian versus Muslim for the most part, but it is ethnic. The biggest ethnic group in Ethiopia is Oromo, uh, about a third of the population, and they have been traditionally excluded from power. Power was shared between the two highland groups, both Ethiopian Orthodox traditionally, the Tigrayan and Amhara. but power has been moving south for a long time in Ethiopia, from Tigray in the far north to Shawa, uh, the Amhara province in, uh, to the south, and now toward the Oromo, who basically live in kind of a, a big, thick ring around the highlands. They're the biggest ethnic group. They want more power. They have one armed insurgent group that's in an official alliance with the TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, but it doesn't seem to have much combat power yet. Uh, that can change in a hurry with groups like that. But at the moment, they don't, they don't seem to have the weapons or the training or the people. There are uh, maybe 50 other ethnic groups in Ethiopia, but really it's, it's between those three groups, Tigrayan, Amhara, and Oromo. Has the United States taken a side in this conflict? Yeah, that's the thing. If you ask me, yeah, the United States is backing the Ethiopian government. If you ask me some other vaguely leftist sites, and to my own discomfiture, we are apparently a vaguely leftist site. But (laughs) uh, according to them, uh, it's the Tigrayans who are getting the U.S. support. I just don't see it. I, I don't see any evidence for it, nor do I see what would be in it for the U.S., Whereas the, the U.S. armed forces have a giant presence in Addis. They have big, big listening stations. They've put a lot of money into the Ethiopian army. They plan to use it as a way of controlling the, the Horn of Africa. I, I just don't see any change in that. And proxies like the UAE and Turkey have been funneling tons of money, uh, well, and Israel and China and all kinds of people have been fun- funneling weapons and money to Ethiopia to the point that the TPLF issued a threat to everybody. If you're part of this, we're going to kill you if we find you. So, yeah, I, I can't see any evidence that the U.S. has abandoned its traditional loyalty to the Ethiopian state. Uh, John, before we go here, uh, just uh, like two, two, two more quick hits I don't want to talk to you about. Um, we mentioned um, uh, the U.S. getting out of Afghanistan and the you know, $3 trillion hole that that's going to, you know, that's money that's not being spent anymore. 
But you mentioned that we just passed the year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan to mostly crickets from all sectors. Yeah. That's that's been extraordinary. It's yeah, the one of those dog that didn't bark stories. There was I remember all this very strange kerfuffle after Biden, because we attribute it to Biden, withdrew a year ago. And it was strange because nobody said, oh, if we'd stuck around a little longer, we could have won. Well, I mean, a few people said that, but even their own fans said, yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Because there was never any way the U.S. was going to win. They'd been there for 20 years and they were further from winning than ever. And nobody quite knew what they were there for anyway. Uh, so there was no real hope for the war in Afghanistan. Nobody wanted to argue that it was a good idea. It was strange to watch. What they did want to argue is how terrible it was when we left. And uh, that was a strange argument because it's like, well, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have gone in there. Uh, maybe we shouldn't have stuck around for 20 years. Maybe we shouldn't have funneled all those trillions into the place. But no one, no one, no one wanted to say um, we should have stuck around because we could have won. So the anniversary came around, and I noticed there were a few uh, right-wing sites basically just giving Biden a kick in passing by saying, there, see, he fled from Afghanistan, and now it's hard for Afghans women, and uh, like it wasn't going to be hard for them anyway. Uh, but extraordinary silence. I mean, at, at the time, the, the people who still believe in U.S. prestige and you know the papers of record and all that they were they were shocked but the, i think they noticed there was there was no response to that there's been I mean, such it, a disconnect it, between the elite. i mean like i mean like it's it's not totally comparable but like it, i mean it's just the, the way you talked about how passionate um the sort of state planners and you know foreign policy elites of western europe and america are for this war in ukraine but like the populations of America and these Western European countries don't give a shit. They don't really, it doesn't affect them. They don't, they don't want to hear about it. They're not interested in uh, going without, you know, uh, heat, uh, gas to heat their homes and car and drive their cars. Uh, but like, you know, in America, like, you know, I, I mean, like thinking back to the Bush years, it was like, you know, the, the accusation that you, that the Democrats would cut and run was like, you know, that, that was that was the silver bullet. And man, they fired a lot of those shots. Yeah. But now it's just like, I think like on, you know, whether you're, whether you're a diehard Republican or, you know, a standard liberal Democrat, nobody really gives a shit about what's happening in Afghanistan or like that we left or that it was a defeat for this country. People just don't want to hear about it. They're bored of it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think Ukraine makes a much better script. Uh, you know, so they're, they're, they're working with the Ukraine script now. Uh, it, it was much more plausible than the the Afghan one, anyway. Um, but you know, I saw I, I'm I'm so damn old. I saw something like this after Vietnam too. There was in part a vengefulness, like a, a resentful departure, like ah, I hope they all choke uh, now that we had to leave. So if something bad does happen in Afghanistan, and I'm sure bad things are happening, especially to the Hazara and other non-Sunni minorities, then uh, a lot of Americans are going to be happy about that, and the rest don't care. But what I remember about Vietnam is, aside from the, uh, I hope they all choke, was the total disappearance of Vietnam from the news for years. 
people forget that it wasn't until the 80s that they started making cool Vietnam movies uh, and people started boasting. It took a while for Rambo served. First Blood Part Two to yeah. come out. Yeah, yeah. For years, they said nothing about it because uh, it was a bummer, man. John, I think I remember back listening to like an old War Nerd episode where you said your your sort of flirtation with being an American nationalist just was ended abruptly after seeing Rambo First Blood Part Two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was not in the mood for bows and arrows. <laughs> I, I, I just didn't think replaying Vietnam with arrows that you had to screw on in a slow motion shot, where you had to screw on the the warhead of the arrows. While somebody, you know, in a in a jungle helmet, wearing a North Vietnamese uniform, wandered around a swamp waiting for you to shoot them. I didn't see that as a plausible <laughs> way of replaying it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, the last thing I want to bring up to you is like, look, we we've talked about this on the show a lot recently. So apologies to the listeners for for beating uh, beating this dead horse again. But look, we we cover the world of war which are, you know, armed conflicts between, uh, you know, large groups of people organizing to, to do violence to one another. But sometimes, sometimes there is an individual. Sometimes there's a man. <laughs> and that man, of course, I'm talking about the guy with the homemade gun who smoked Shinzo Abe in Japan. <laughs> John, I just got to ask you, I mean, come on, like, don't we all kind of have to pause and just admire this guy? Because it's just like the way it was described. And I, 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 I don't know who to cite on this, but someone said it on Twitter the other day. And I thought it was so perfect. This is like if a Paul Schrader protagonist got everything they wanted. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. He beat the odds. That's for sure. It's, <laughs> it's like you make a zip gun from West Side Story. And... <laughs> It actually works, and it kills the prime minister, our former prime minister of Japan. I mean, that that is some fine shooting and some, <laughs> some fine gun making, you know. Uh, and his bodyguards were so mortally embarrassed. And embarrassment in Japan. Whoa, that is embarrassment. <laughs> Cute. And yet nobody committed seppuku. No. Like, what are they coming to? Ah. <laughs> but yeah, like this would be like, uh, like you know, uh, the 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 LDP is severing their ties with the Unification Church. Something like uh, almost half of the Japanese public doesn't even want a state funeral for Shinzo Abe. They're just gonna they're gonna dump him in a ditch and just forget about him. It's just like, yeah. like I said, this would be like the end of First Reformed if Ethan Hawke um uh, actually killed one of the Koch brothers, and then they were like, okay, we're stopping uh, petroleum now. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing everything. Global warming's over. You did it. You convinced us. Yeah. Well, I, I guess, you know, Japanese incels are a pretty big demographic. <laughs> and now they're weaponized, so you better start listening to them. Oh, man. Government-issued well, waifus are on the horizon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, before we go, uh, Matt and Chris, I was wondering, you know, you're sitting here with one of the, one of the premier uh, war podcasters. Do you want to give uh, John and our listeners a preview of your upcoming project, or are you not ready for that? Oh, no, we can. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So the the, the podcast is, uh, I think now we can officially say it's going to be called Hell on Earth. And it is the story specifically of the 30 Years War uh, and more generally about the long crisis of the 17th century and even more generally about the uh, violent birth of capitalism and the de demise of feudalism uh, in uh, Germany. And uh, yeah, it's just... Uh, I don't know if I have any uh, specific questions other than, uh, John, who you got in the 30 Years' War? 
<laughs> yeah, who's the guy? Who's the guy? I the only guy I got is PKD, who brought Wallenstein into uh, one of his great novels, one of the last novels, um, the Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Oh, that's a great book. Yeah, great book. That's a, and, that's a that's a that's a chop a book club of the month. Yeah, uh, the Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Check it out. And it's scary as fuck. Uh, and uh, also for me, it because uh, I spent many years failing in Berkeley, uh, and Berkeley seemed to be failing around me as the the hangover from the '60s faded. And uh, it's about that, you know. It's a, it. I think it opens on the day uh, Lenin gets shot, and uh, it's. It's that sense of a, a lingering afterlife, as in Ubik, but uh, with with no hope. And it's based on that really extraordinary story about Bishop James Pike, which happened when I was a kid. This very upper crust Anglican bishop in San Francisco, uh, the Archbishop of Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, who I think had gotten into the psychedelics a little bit, um, <laughs> wandered out into the Jordanian deserts looking for more. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Like, I don't know. Hello, any Dead Sea Scrolls? <laughs> and uh, he had nothing with him but an open bottle of glass bottle of Coke. And you know, anybody could have told him it was not a <laughs> it was not a good survival strategy or a decent way to hydrate in that situation. More like Dead Me Scrolls. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how it ended up. You know, he wandered around until he just keeled over and died. And uh, PKD, like he always did, took that goofy Bay Area story and wrote something very dire and, and very beautiful out of it. And, and part of it is musing on Wallenstein and how he goes from such a brilliant general to uh, this fool who's obsessed with the occult. Um, but along the way, every Berkeley landmark is invoked like there um, – the weird psychic who gives all her profits to the IRA, which PKD massively disapproves of, uh, <laughs> says, oh, the head waiter at Larry Blake's is a KGB agent. And it's like, what? I went to Larry Blake's. I went to Larry Blake's last night. And uh, that that was kind of a shock. It's, you know, that shock that New Yorkers pleasantly get when they say some somebody talking about, 31st and 3rd, and, I, you know, I read that in all those New York books, and I never knew what they were talking about. But uh, this, this is Berkeley for us in that novel. And uh, it gives a sense of the 30 years' war, as PKD frequently says, setting Europe back a thousand years. Um, but for me, i got to say, I, first of all, I think this is a great project. I think it's a great idea. And also, i I got to spare a word for... Uh, the no doubt cheesy, but uh, deeply imprinted on my mind movie, The Last Valley, starring uh, Michael, Michael Caine. Yeah, Michael Caine. I was trying to find that to watch, yeah. and it's not available. No, it's too bad too because Michael Caine doing a German accent is is, <laughs> is worth, <laughs> worth <laughs> the good ideas are rare. <laughs> that's, what he, <laughs> that's what he says after uh, stabbing his second in command, who's a genuine religious fanatic rather than just a mercenary with the spike from his helmet <laughs> uh, and then wiping the blood off. Uh, and yeah, oh, it, oh, it's beautiful. Michael Caine doing a, 
a, a raid on a, another city and they come back to the valley uh, and the, after quick cuts of the raid, which is horror, horror, piled on horror. And uh, they ask him how he did. Oh, the prince, he won. <laughs> we lost. Oh, how we lost. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, I will see if we. I will see if it's available to torrent somewhere. You guys yeah. should definitely. I, we could, yeah, yeah, I've done a bonus movie episode on that. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that uh, that does it for today's episode. I want to thank uh, John Dolan for joining us today, and you know, would uh, implore all of our listeners to uh, check out Radio War Nerd on Patreon. It is one of the best podcasts for current events, history, for uh, basically anything war related. And uh, shout out Mark Ames as well. Uh, John, do you have anything else you'd like to uh, plug? Or uh, oh, I, I want to thank Matt for for coming on and talking about the Germans in the U.S. Civil War. Because uh, I think that's one of the really undertold stories, and the more I learned about it, the more impressive it got. So yeah, th- well, thank you for having me. That was a great yeah. time. Yeah. So anyway, no, I always enjoy uh, being on Chapo, and uh, it was great talking to you guys. Well, thanks once again, John. But before we uh, sign off, I do have to do some plugging of my own to remind you, Hogs, about our upcoming fall tour. I'm going to run through it real quick once again, but please uh, check it out. Tickets are still available. October 1st, Chicago, Illinois at the Vic Theater. October 8th, Los Angeles, California. Theater at the Ace Hotel. October 14th, New York City and Town Hall Theater. And then finally, October 30th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida at Revolution. Tickets available at chapotraphouse.com slash live. And also our wonderful new merchandise available at chapotraphouse.shop. So please check out both of those. We'd love for you to come out and uh, see us perform in uh, this fall in those cities. And we'd love to see you wearing your wonderful Chapo merchandise out and about on the streets, in the world, loving us. We love you. So thanks again to John Dolan and Radio Warner for joining us today. That'll be all for us today. Bye-bye. <laughs>